As we've uh, seen over the past uh, two months, the whole backdrop of 2 Peter surrounds false teaching. Various people, um, nameless people, we don't know who they were, within the first century Christian church have, have started teaching that Christ isn't going to come back. So he ascended into heaven at the end of the Gospels, and that was that, pretty much. In other words, Jesus is in heaven for keeps. He's not going to have any more to do with humanity on this earth. And um, it's an attractive teaching, really. And worse, it was taught by attractive people. These false teachers, they were insiders. They've arisen from inside the church, not from outside. They're confident, they're eloquent. And there's a very real danger that their teaching is going to get a foothold and it will actually affect negatively the lives of individual believers. And 2 Peter is... The whole of 2 Peter is the Apostle Peter's response to this teaching. Now, last week when Tim was speaking, we saw how he completely undermined the credibility of the false teachers. They were people who made big, bold claims, but actually they couldn't deliver on what they were promising. They're small men, out of their depth, really, despite all the promising rhetoric. And now here in chapter 3, Peter goes back to the actual teaching the, uh, the subject, the content of what they've been teaching, he analyzes it, and then he totally pulls it apart. And what we're going to do tonight is simply look at the first 10 verses um, of 2 Peter chapter 3, and we're going to do it in three ways. First of all, we're going to look at how we prepare our minds to deal with false teaching. So verses 1 and 2. Secondly, we're going to look at understanding the seriousness of the false teaching, because we can't Um, take it for granted or underestimate how serious it was. And then finally, we're going to shed the light of God's truth on human lies. And that's, I think, will probably be the main point of our service this evening. But let's start off in in verses 1 and 2, where uh, Peter starts off by saying, Dear friends, which is basically a nice way of, of saying that he's going to start a new section. So he's dealt with the false teachers... And now he's going to move on to their content. He's pulled them apart. He's undermined them personally. And now he's going to try and pull apart their teaching. Now Peter says that it's the, uh, the second letter he's written. And we don't know for sure. It's possible that the first letter of Peter is, is the first letter that he wrote. Um, or it could just be a lost letter that's not been preserved for us in our Bibles. We don't know for sure. But either way, that the reason... For both of the letters that he wrote, it's pretty straightforward. It's to stimulate his readers to wholesome thinking. So in other words, thinking that is sincere and pure. We might even say thinking that is undistorted. Or in in business speak, we might say it was joined up thinking or blue sky thinking, I think is the term. Um, In a few minutes, we're going to be considering exactly what the false teachers were saying But it's very clear, I think, that their thinking was skewed. It was distorted. And a big consequence of their distorted thinking was a wandering away from the truth of God's word. But before he can actually deal with that wrong teaching, Peter needs to make sure that his readers are thinking differently. Not in a distorted way, but wholesomely and sincerely. So in short, they need to be thinking clearly. Their mindset needs to be correct so that they'll be ready to hear what Peter's saying and ready to take it in. I do, um, I do sometimes wonder whether the reason we sit in church services, and I include myself here, and we struggle to understand what the preacher's saying, is because our minds are so cluttered up. Um, 
full of distorted worldly thinking from the past week. You know, there are, there are plenty of subconscious, subliminal messages coming straight out of the TV and the internet, particularly at this time of year. It's Christmas, so let's just celebrate. Let's go out and buy more, spend more, eat more, party more. But God and the, the true message of, of Christmas is, is nowhere to be seen at all. Now, of course, it's hard enough, isn't it, to read and understand the Bible anyway. But it's harder still if we give ourselves a handicap in our Christian lives by leaving our Bibles to gather dust on the shelf. And I wish I spent as much time reading the Bible as I do watching the TV or surfing the internet. It's no wonder, isn't it, that uh, on a Sunday in church, we can be a bit punch drunk, stuffed full of everything that the world has to offer. Now, don't get me wrong, there, there are plenty of legitimate, uh, good, enjoyable things for us to do with our time, but God's word can get squeezed out. And as a result, our thinking can become twisted and distorted. We can lack perspective. And twisted and godless thinking can lead to twisted and godless theology. And twisted and godless theology can lead to twisted and godless behaviour. So the only alternative, Peter says, is to think wholesomely. And what better way is there to do that than taking the time to think and meditate on God's word, not just a couple of verses in the morning before we go to work, but a bit more time than that. A chance for us to fall in love with God's word. In verse 2, Peter urges his readers to to remember, to recall to mind that the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Saviour through your apostles. Now, it's a bit vague. Peter doesn't mention any specific passages, but... As the coming again of Jesus is in question here, I think it's fairly likely that Peter has particularly in mind teaching from the Old Testament, prophecies that talk about his coming again and the final judgment, the final reckoning. Because after all, these are the very things that are being denied. And just as in chapter one of the letter, Peter makes it very clear that the teaching of the apostles is following on in the same tradition. It's equally authoritative. It validates the Old Testament prophecies. Now, when when he uses the word apostles here, it's it's in more the general sense. The basic meaning is messenger. So we're not just thinking about the original 12 apostles, but all those other missionaries and evangelists who took the gospel the length and breadth of the Roman Empire. Ultimately, what these people taught, well, they were the commands of Jesus. And the whole of the Old Testament, well, that was fulfilled in the person of Jesus. So there's a unity between the two. Peter says, don't forget both what we've been teaching you and also the witness of the Old Testament scripture. Christ is coming back. There will be a final reckoning. Yes, it's hard to take that in when you're busy being manipulated by false teachers with distorted thinking. But Peter says, at least start by addressing your own thinking. Think wholesomely. Recall the teaching of God's word. Let it sink into your heart and mind. And then you may be in a position to discern and to see for yourself what teaching is real and what teaching is false. But uh, secondly, what exactly is this uh, false teaching? And why is it such a problem? In verses 3 to 4, Peter fleshes it out for us and shows us why it's so serious. So, first of all, in, in verse 3, First of all, you must understand 
then in the last days scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. Now, this phrase, the last days, is, is broadly speaking now. It's the, the period of time between when Jesus left earth and ascended to heaven and when he'll come back. Now, in salvation terms, everything is pretty much done and dusted. Jesus has died, he's atoned for sin, he's returned to life, he's conquered death, he's sitting at God's right hand in heaven, interceding for us. So his return is the one thing that remains unfulfilled. Peter's readers were living in the last days, and we are too. And one thing that characterises this period of time called the last days is that there arise a group of people called scoffers. Now, at different points in the past few weeks, Lucy and I have been without an oven because we're having a new kitchen fitted. So we have been very reluctantly forced to go to Field Road Fish and Chip Shop. Um, You know, it's been a real drain, I can tell you. And there has been plenty of scoffing going on in our house, a lot of it. But um, Peter's here referring, obviously, to scoffing of a much more serious kind, um, people who are mocking the word of God. Now, according to our NIV Bible, these people are following their own evil desires, although a better translation here would probably be that they're living according to their own desires. So, in other words, their thinking is distorted and twisted precisely because there's no room for God. They aren't factoring God into their equations at all. And what exactly are they saying? Well, verse 4 tells us. They will say, where is this coming he promised? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. Now, this coming refers to God coming in power and glory to judge the wicked, to usher in his kingdom. Of course, this will be done through his son, through Jesus, when he returns. But the the mockers are saying, no, it's not going to happen But more than that, by denying the coming, they're denying all the things that are associated with that coming. So, God's judgment, the demise of the wicked, the vindication of the saints, the rule of Christ and his church over a glorified and renewed heaven and earth. So, you see, in one fell swoop, the false teachers are denying it all. And the consequence of that is, do what you want. Live life to the full. Work hard, play hard, enjoy yourself, because there won't be a final reckoning. And the the scoffers um, have two main arguments to back up their thinking, which you can see in verse 4. The first one is, where is it? Where is the promise of this coming? When I used to work in in the centre of Birmingham, I got the the train from Blockswich into New Street Station, and it, it wasn't the most reliable of train lines, so it would become a sort of standing joke for people waiting on the platform. When the, the automated announcement came through, it would go something like, the 806 London Midland service to block switch is delayed by approximately 10 minutes. And then you'd wait 10 minutes, and then it would go, is delayed by approximately 20 minutes. And then after 20 minutes, it would say, 40 minutes. And then 800 days, or something like that. Maybe not that last one. Then I'll get sued by London Midland Transport. But uh, eventually the announcement would come through telling us that the train was cancelled. And of course, as soon as the first announcement of delay came through, we all expected the worst. We knew what to expect. And I don't think it was an unreasonable expectation that delays would normally result in cancellation. Not always, but mostly. Now, effectively, the false teachers are applying this kind of human logic to God. 
where is he? He's not come back yet, so despite all the promises, he's clearly not going to. And then um, the second reason they give. Everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. In other words, this promise of God that there'll be a final reckoning, it's just fanciful, it's a, it's a bit of a pipe dream. These promises, well, they were, they were made to our Old Testament forefathers hundreds and thousands of years ago, and, and nothing's changed. Summer follows spring, day follows night, everything continues exactly as it has done. And so what they do is they, they point to the basic continuity of life in the universe to show that God's claims are off beam. Now, as we can see on the screen, this is mockery. There's an inherent mockery here, a sort of, yeah, you know, whatever sort of attitude. Where is he? Come on, prove it. And of course, treating God with mockery is, is a very serious thing. But it isn't just mockery. It's far more serious than that. It pretty much amounts to insulting God. One commentator says that these scoffers are effectively challenging the honour of God. And to accuse God of, of not keeping a promise is to accuse him of being a liar, of not being able to deliver on his promises. Back in chapter 1, Peter talks about the, the divine power of God, and he says this in verse, I think it's verse 4 of chapter 1. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises. So the false teachers were cutting right through that when they mockingly called out, where is the coming he promised? You see, if if such an important promise as the return of Christ is a false promise, well, I guess we'd all have to start doubting all of the great and precious promises that Peter mentioned that we have in our Bible. And we, I guess, have to call into question both the reliability of God and his divine power too. So it's rather ironic, really, that these false teachers have the nerve to accuse God of not delivering on his promises, when that's exactly what they're guilty of. In chapter 2, Peter describes them as springs without water. In other words, people who uh, promise freedom, but they don't deliver it. They are themselves slaves. But for the moment, these false teachers seem to be holding sway. Nobody seemed to have been able in any way to disprove what they'd said. Of course, ultimately, only the final judgment, only the return of Christ, will ever prove beyond any doubt that these people are false. But perhaps Christians of the day were unsure how to oppose them because these people were so confident, they were so articulate after all. So Peter does the best And the only thing that he could do in the circumstances, he sheds God's truth on the false teaching. He's proved the the seriousness of the charge. And now in the next five verses, verses five to ten, he proceeds to dismantle the case made against God using God's own actions and words as evidence. And he does that in four ways. First of all, Peter says in verse 5 that the, um, the scoffers are deliberately forgetting. Now, although there's some debate about this phrase, it, it seems to be very much in keeping with the description of the false teachers in chapter 2 as bold and arrogant. They sort of have a kind of um, brazen self-confidence, so much so that they are willfully and deliberately forgetting 
God's role in human history as recorded in the Bible. And in particular here, Peter mentions two very important past events, creation and the flood, two events that are linked by water and the word. So in verse 5, Peter mentions creation. You'll remember in Genesis 1, when God first created the world, that it says it was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And it was out of that water that the earth was formed and shaped, and it all came about because of the word. God spoke, and it came to pass. God is a powerful creator God. And then in verse 6, Peter refers to the time when the world was destroyed by a cataclysmic worldwide flood. Water was the creative instrument in creation. Now it was an instrument of destruction used by God to destroy all of humanity with the exception of Noah and his family. And again, it came about by God's word. The warning, the word he gave to Noah did come to pass. Water and the word. The same process for creation and for judgment. God is a powerful creator God and he's a powerful God of judgment. And Peter's point here is very simple. The false teachers are pointing to the existence of an unchanging universe. Everything going on as it always does. As a sign that the second coming of Christ and the final judgment wasn't going to happen. But Peter says, well that's nonsense. Because for a start there was a time when the very universe they're putting all their faith in wasn't there at all. God brought it into being by the power of his word. And since then, things haven't simply continued unchangingly. The flood was a significant interruption in the natural order of things. Millions, possibly billions, we don't know, of human beings were wiped out by the flood. The physical face of the planet was changed. Why? Because... God's righteous judgment fell upon man's sin. Genesis 6 tells us um, that God was grieved because he saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. Now, if the scoffers had been living at the time when Noah was preaching, no doubt they'd have said, where's this flood you've been promising Noah? Come on. You know, you've been, you've been preaching a hundred years now and everything just continues like it always has. And it's a sobering thought, actually, that this is probably what people did, given that only eight people in the whole of the world's population at that time were saved. But despite the scoffing and the disbelief, God's judgment did come about. So the false teachers are guilty of utter folly. They're either forgetting or choosing to ignore that God has spectacularly intervened in human history in days gone by in order to judge sin. God has previous. God has a track record. Why would anyone want to put God to the test and bank on there not being a final judgment? Peter says, look at your past history, mankind. It's happened before and it will happen again. And it's worth us, I think, looking back as well and remembering these things, particularly if we're in danger of taking God for granted, particularly at this time of year when a cuddly baby Jesus is probably the only thing in our line of sight. The Old Testament may seem a remote, irrelevant book to us at times, but it shows us 
God's character, that he hates sin. He's dealt with it before, and he will do so again. Now, in verse 7, Peter tells us that it's by the very same word of God that future judgment will happen. That same word which previously brought creation into being and then destroyed the world with a flood. Peter says, by the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. In Romans 2, Paul tells us that unrepentant sinners are are storing up wrath against themselves. And it's the same idea here. The world is being reserved. It's storing up fire. It may seem to us at the moment that people are getting away with sin. Perhaps that's what convinced the scoffers that judgment wasn't a reality. But wrath is being stored up and it will be poured out at the final judgment. Now, the primary point of the judgment, I think, as it was during the flood, is to deal with human sin. So I guess in a sense we could say that the physical world is almost collateral damage. It gets decimated by fire. But as we considered a few weeks ago, the burning up of this this world carries a wonderful consequence. We don't need to read destruction as annihilation because the physical earth will remain just as it did after the flood. The sin of mankind will be judged once and for all, and then this physical world will be burnt up in the process. But once the created world's impurities have been burned up, God is going to form a perfect new earth out of the ashes. It's a return to the original blueprint, a physical world which will be a fit and proper place for God and his church to dwell in. That's just uh, by the by, I guess, in this passage. It's something that Peter only hints at. But it's the spine-tingling, wonderful future that is the reality. But for the moment, we need to be clear on Peter's main point, that God has intervened in human history before, and he'll do so again. He has spectacularly judged humanity before in destroying the world, and he'll do so again. There will be a final reckoning, make no mistake. Now, Peter's next point is in in verse 8, in the first part of verse 9, that God has his own timetable, and it's very different to ours. (coughs) Now, in a sense, and I'll just have a quick glass of water, the position of the false teachers was very logical. If you've invited someone to dinner for 8 o'clock in the evening, and they haven't arrived by 9.30, they haven't contacted you, it's probably safe to assume they're not coming. As I mentioned earlier, if the train is over 30 minutes late, the chances are it's been cancelled, not coming. In Matthew 24, Jesus tells a parable of the wise servant and the wicked servant. Because the master's away, the wicked servant begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink and get drunk. It's a case of while the cat is away, the mouse plays. And why does he think he can get away with it? What's the rationale? Well, the wicked servant says to himself... My master is staying away a long time. So he doesn't expect to be called to account for his actions because the delay in the master returning seems to indicate that he's never going to come back. And I guess that's why a lot of people in our world are so bold, so blatant in their behaviour. They feel able to live exactly as they want to, sleep with who they want to, steal from who they want to, persecute whom they want to, you know, and so on. Because, in their minds, 
there really are no consequences. There's no final reckoning. Now, Peter says it's a, a terrible mistake to apply that sort of human reasoning and logic to God because God is eternal. He, he dwells beyond our time and space constraints. A year is a long time for us. It's not for God. Now, I guess it's just about possible for us to imagine in our minds a God who is going to live forever. But can you even begin to imagine in your mind that God has never not existed? So if you go back in time, before this world was even created, millions of years, that God was still there, that God was never born, he was never created, he's simply always been. God is. Now that, that sort of concept just blows your mind away, doesn't it? It's no wonder that Peter says, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. It may be that Peter was thinking of Psalm 90, which says something very similar. For a thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night. So from our limited perspective, God, I guess, is being very slow. But from God's perspective, it's an entirely different thing. That's why Peter says categorically that actually God isn't slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He looks down from heaven. He surveys the whole course of human history. He sees the big picture. And God, being God, operates according to his own agenda and his own purposes. He has his own timetable, and it's very different to ours. So we shouldn't mistake delay for procrastination. But thirdly, Peter says in the second half of verse 9, that God has a very specific reason for delay. Even if we'll never fully comprehend God's purposes or reasoning, and let's be honest, why should we? There is a very particular reason for God's delaying of the final judgment. And it's a reason that even we can understand. Verse 9 says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. It's amazing, really, here in the middle of um, what seems to be a very negative, a very dark chapter, comes one of the most precious, wonderful verses in the whole of the Bible. The delay in the return of Christ is a kind, compassionate act of mercy on God's part. He wants as many people as possible to repent and to be in heaven. God isn't a malicious, vindictive, vengeful God who can't wait to send people to hell. You may remember um, this morning, Ezekiel 18, where God says, I take no pleasure in the death of anyone. Repent and live. And that's God's desire for all of us. Repentance and life, not pain and misery in hell. Look at the two key words in the verse. He doesn't want anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. These two words, anyone and everyone, they allow room for the salvation of the most stubborn and unbelieving of people. Even room for the scoffers. The false teachers who've done so much damage, who were denying God, who are living for their own selfish desires, they are not beyond the span of God's patience. They scorn him for the delay, but that very delay is to accommodate people like them, to give them an opportunity, if they will take it, to come to repentance. Of course, it doesn't mean that they will. If you're sitting here tonight and you're a bit scornful of 
of the church, of Christians, I would urge you not to throw God's patience back in his face. You may, so far, have gone through your life largely unscathed, without God. Well, that's because of his grace, his mercy. It's not because somehow you've got the Midas touch. God is delaying judgment for you, for the rest of the world. Take refuge in God's mercy while there's still time, because now is the day of salvation, Paul says in 2 Corinthians. Now, this chapter is a, it's a sober reality check for people who don't take God seriously, because God does hate sin, and he will judge this world. But in the midst of all of that, it shows us as well a different but equally true aspect of God's character, his patience and his love. You may be surprised to know it's backed up in the Old Testament too. Some people like to think that the Old Testament God is angry and uh, the New Testament God is loving. And that's not true because 2 Peter shows us plenty of God's wrath upon sin. And uh, in the Old Testament, in Psalm 103, we're told that the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. And then in Exodus 34, God describes himself, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate, the gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness and rebellion and sin. So that's the God of the Old and the New Testament who's giving people, sinners, time to repent. And of course, God, he'd be well within his rights to destroy all of us and start again. Because After all, even as Christians, we continue to fail him. Ask yourself, when was the last time that you went through a single hour without any wrong words or actions or thoughts? We're so corrupt, aren't we? We're so riddled with sin, and yet God is so patient and so long-suffering and so slow to anger. Now, this is only a side point, I guess, but it's worth making, I think, that if that's God's character, then it's surely something that we should increasingly be reflecting in our lives. In Romans 8, Paul says that we were predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son. So it's part of God's eternal plan that his people become more and more like Christ in their hearts, in their minds, and in their behaviour. And of course, to be like Christ is to be like God. So if God is patient and long-suffering and slow to anger, what about us? Shouldn't we also in our lives, in our attitudes, be patient and long-suffering. So every time somebody does something to you that's unhelpful and wrong, and and you respond with kindness and with, with patience, you're reflecting the noble character of God. And it's a challenge for us. Because Jesus said, didn't he, in the Sermon on the Mount, love your enemies, but we find it hard to actually love our friends, if we're honest. So as you, as you sit here tonight, examine yourself. Are you someone who's quite proud of the fact that you don't suffer fools gladly? You say it as it is. You don't tolerate people's weaknesses and failings. You've got a short fuse. You get angry with people. It may be that you're doing what the people of Ezekiel's day were doing. Yeah, you know, I get angry. It's just the way I am. You know, it's not my fault. It's because of my, uh, my past, my family background, my genetics. I can't help it. We don't have to be prisoners of our past. God saved us as we were, but he doesn't want us to stay there. He wants us to change. God desires that we 
become more and more like him. And that does mean being patient, long-suffering, and slow to anger, reflecting those wonderful qualities that God has in abundance. Qualities that saw us saved in the first place, because we could have been cast off soon after we were born, I guess. But um, the final point in verse 10. Peter returns to his main point. God is patient, he is kind, but he will still keep his promise. He will return. Unrepentant sinners aren't to think that they can take advantage of God's patience in delaying his return by living how they want to and not repenting. Peter says, The day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed in fire. And the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. You may well remember earlier in the year, um, Harold Camping trying twice to predict when the Lord was going to return. And needless to say, he failed abysmally both times. I found it amazing that he even tried to do it the second time after he'd failed the first time. Um, You see, sadly, men like Harold Camping, they only encourage people to think it's not going to happen. They invite ridicule and scorn. It's very sad, and it's a detriment to the, the witness of the church. When I was growing up, I heard... And I was influenced by many, many sermons which would examine current events and use them as evidence for Jesus' return being very, very soon, possibly at the turn of the millennium. You know, Israel was back in the promised land. They were existing as a nation, so the end must be near. Or maybe the European Union. Well, you know, it's the equivalent of the old Roman Empire, so it must be that the end is near. And lots of other things as well. Now, up to a point, it was helpful to have that sense that the Lord is going to return. But all that second-guessing and that speculation wasn't really helpful. And it's, it's unbiblical. Jesus himself said that even he didn't know the day of his return. Only God the Father knows. The point is that Jesus, like Peter, when he talked about his second coming, he, he likened it to the coming of a thief, unexpected and sudden. So in that sense, it can't be predicted. A successful thief isn't going to let you know the precise time he's going to turn up to collect your TV. The Apostle Paul says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, while people are saying peace and safety. Destruction will come on them suddenly. So scoffers who think that delay means procrastination, they're the sort of people who will be utterly confounded and amazed when Jesus really does come back. Just as in the day of the flood, when people would have been bewildered, terrified when the waters came, that'll be the same reaction when Christ comes back in power and glory. But of course, even though we may be ready for it, it doesn't mean we're going to know the precise day and time, because we won't. And there's no point trying to predict it. Now, following on from verse 7, Peter says that the coming of Jesus will be accompanied by a dramatic, physical destruction of the earth which we've already considered briefly now some people will say this is symbolic language so for example fire it's an image that jesus used when he was talking about hell and he used it deliberately to convey the awfulness and the horror and the pain of hell but i'm not convinced that we can just dismiss this verse as metaphor and symbolism Because Peter's already compared the destruction of the earth in the time of the flood 
with this destruction by fire at the end of time. And the flood was a real physical event. There's a comparison there which suggests that the earth's final destruction will be too. And it also looks as if this phrase, heavens and earth, is being used very deliberately to refer to the real physical elements. And I actually think this passage, it loses something if we don't view it as a shockingly real event. For those of you who've watched the Hollywood film Terminator 2, Judgment Day, um, there's a chilling scene where Sarah Connor has a, has a dream or a vision of the nuclear attack by Skynet, the, uh, the computer system, on planet Earth. And, and she's standing in a park, and she's helpless as a, a blinding light just appears in the sky. And then a raging fire sweeps through the city, ripping tower blocks to shreds, frazzling the watching people. It, it's, a, it's a really horrific scene, actually. And it's meant to be, because it helps her to realise exactly what the consequences will be if humanity loses and Skynet takes over. And in the same way, we won't truly realise the awesome horror of God's judgment if we reduce this verse just to to symbolism, to, uh, to metaphor. Everything in this world will be laid bare. All of mankind's greatest buildings, her advanced technology and so on. It will all be burnt up. I think it's a reminder to us as individuals that we carry absolutely nothing into eternity, do we? All our material possessions, our achievements, our selfish dreams, our ambitions that, we, that take up so much of our thinking, it will all be burnt up. Nothing but true repentance and God-given faith in Christ is going to survive that day. And it's that day that's referred to by Peter here as the day of the Lord. At the moment, it's the day of humanity, isn't it, really? It's the day of wars and rumours of wars, famine, earthquakes, social unrest, economic turmoil, celebrity culture. It's our day right now. But all those things are going to be swept away on that day when the Lord will have the stage to himself. It really will be his day the day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And it's a day to either fear or a day to rejoice in. And that depends on our response to Jesus Christ right here, right now, in our lives. Well, next week, Tim is going to conclude our series in 2 Peter by looking at how knowledge of that future judgment, that future destruction of the world, should affect our lives as Christians. Because it should do, really, shouldn't it? But we're going to finish here with that picture that the Apostle Peter has given us of what is an awesome and a terrifying day. And like the the false claims that have been made, the coming of the Lord in power and glory is a reality. And so there will be a final reckoning and a final judgment for sin. And the only reason it hasn't happened yet, it's because of God's patience and his mercy. If you haven't yet taken advantage of God's gracious delay by repenting of your sin, now is the time. And for those of us who have responded in faith, well, we can sing our final song now truthfully and joyfully. So let's uh, stand and sing our final hymn, Rejoicing in Hope, We Wait for Our King. His coming is sure, his conquest we sing. <laughs>